welcome to the latest Dairy Dialogue podcast broadcast on April the 12th. Those who listen to this weekly program will have noticed a bit of a problem with that in that there wasn't one last week. Hopefully you were so bothered by this that you listened to the previous one twice instead, but the reason behind it wasn't me being tired of it all or having no one to talk to. It was caused by a major computer glitch somewhere in the William Reed Business Media system, just not here in my office. Our entire content management system went down, meaning we couldn't publish anything even if we wanted to. No articles, no videos, and of course, therefore, no podcasts. Thankfully, there were no major breaking news stories to contend with, but it does go to show just how reliant we are on technology. And when it fails us, we're kind of lost. It was a bit like being in the middle of nowhere with no 4G. How did they cope without smartphones in the 19th century? But I'm not about to go into a long diatribe about technology because we have things to talk about in the dairy industry. And I don't want to change the name of the podcast to Technology Talk, partly because I wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. Not that that's ever really stopped me before. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and this week we're back with three interviews with Niso, NZMP, and Tetra Pak. And amazingly, I even have two interviews already done for next week's podcast, plus one more planned, as well as interviews already set up for the week after that. And then it'll be May and Vita Foods, and then there's the Free From Expo in Barcelona, and maybe a few months after that, Brexit, as if we haven't had enough of that hanging over our heads like the Sword of Damocles. And we still don't know what's going on. But I do know what we have lined up for you on the podcast this week. We have interviews with Robin Eilander from Niso on the Dutch company's work on the relationship between spores in milk powder and predicting spoilage in UHT milk products. Eric Morrison at Fonterra's ingredient division, NZMP, about refreshing its risk and commercial solutions. And to Martin Engdahl at Tetra Pak about the company's connected packaging platform. And we have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with INTLFC Stone's Liam Fenton. And so it's to the Netherlands for our first feature this week to talk about a practical and reliable microbial method to measure heat-resistant bacterial spores in milk powders. Robin Eilander is Senior Project Manager, Microbiomics and Food Safety at NISO, and I asked her how long they've been working on this topic. The issue with spores in UHT products has been around for decades, so it has been studied for a long time. But in the consortium setting, we started off in 2013. We basically noticed that not only do you have an issue with spores in ingredients or in products, but also in what methods do you then use to detect them? How do you interpret the results? So that is a a separate issue that comes along with it. And once you notice that this issue is shared uh, by quite a few companies that we do research for, we thought it would be more powerful to to stick the heads together and to, in a pre-competitive setting, study this issue together. And, and that started out in 2013. And, and how was the consortium put together in terms of the, the makeup of the companies and, and yourselves? Yes, yeah, so we do research for quite a, a large group of, of dairy companies. And uh, once we noticed that this is a, a common problem that is shared, we basically did acquisition amongst our uh, key accounts that we do a lot of collaborations with and just assess their interest to join us in this pre-competitive consortium. So we were more the initiator, but also the coordinator. And we were also the, uh, as NISO, the actual company performing the work, whereas the other companies, they contributed uh, both 
in-kind, so with, with materials, with knowledge, uh, as also cash to, to make sure that we could perform all of the research associated with it. Uh, so it was really a joint effort coordinated by NISO. So how does that work in terms of the other the other companies? Do they then use the results that you have come up with or the end product? Definitely, but it's always been the idea of the complete consortium to publish the results. The main driver behind all of this was not only to increase our understanding and see how the results from our research could benefit the, the companies that were part of this consortium, but really also to get the word out and, and to increase the communication in the entire dairy market on what kind of methods are being used, what are the implications if different methods come with different outcomes and different interpretations, uh, how can we improve the communication between producers of dairy ingredients such as milk powder and the consumers, uh, so the buyers of milk powder basically. So it's always been the idea to, to publish this in an open source and that's why we did a peer-reviewed uh, publication in the International Journal of Dairy Technology. In that sense, all companies can benefit from our findings. And what were the findings of the research? Well, there were multiple. The first thing that we started off with was an inventory. So when you have spores in, in milk powders, uh, the first questions we had also for the partners in the consortium was, what kind of methods do you use to detect them? and to enumerate them uh, for your risk assessment when it comes to spoilage of UHT dairy products. So we did an inventory on what kind of methods were being used, and then you need to think about which heat treatments, uh, but also which cultivation medium, which incubation temperatures, uh, how do you interpret the results. And we also did an inventory on the type of spore-forming species that are often encountered, and what are the most problematic species that we're dealing with when it comes to uh, spoilage issues. So coming from that, we had quite a clear overview of what to really direct our research to. The first thing we did was to test the recovery of the media that were being used in the different methods connected to which species are most commonly found. So we had 16 different bacterial species that form spores that are often encountered in the dairy environment. So this can be either milk powders, but also, for instance, farm environments where the, the introduction of spores actually takes place. And we tested their recovery on six different plating media. And uh, in that sense, one of the most important findings is that one of the media that is often used at certain companies did not support the growth of such spores at all. There is also a standard method already out there, an ISO method, specifically for the recovery or, or the, the detection and enumeration of very heat-resistant spores. And that uses a medium that also did not support growth of all of those different species. So the most important finding in that sense is that the TSA medium supported the growth the best. So there's never one medium that is optimal for all species. We were able to optimize that a bit. So that was one of the most important findings. And then also uh, one of the directions we wanted to move towards was there is an ISO method, but it's not commonly used. And why is that? Uh, and one of the reasons for that is that it requires heating at 106 degrees. And for a lot of companies or labs, this was an issue because you need specific equipment to reach such temperatures, either oil baths or pressure pans. And not every lab has this or there are certain safety issues involved in that, specifically when you're using oil baths. And it's more difficult to really get this temperature correct. So what happens in practice is a lot of labs use 100 degrees. But of course, if you heat at 100 degrees or at 106, you will get different outcomes. So we really wanted to see whether we could offer a more practical alternative method 
next to this ISO method and see if we can improve the standardization. So the next step in this consortium project was to compare the results of using the ISO method and a more practical method with heating at 100 degrees and then plating on TSA using milk powders that were collected by all of the consortium members and to see whether we could get similar results, uh, what the differences were, do we have the ability to translate the analytical results from one method to the other, and what type of species do we encounter. So the most important finding of that direction was that both methods perform similarly, provided that you adjust your specifications, and that's really the interpretation of the results. So heating at 106 degrees, you will have less spores recovered. There will be more spores that are killed by this heat treatment, but we could see a very nice correlation of tenfold, which means that if you heat at 100 degrees, you can still get the same interpretation, same predictability of spoilage, but you need to adjust your specifications tenfold. So for instance, from 100 uh, spores per gram to 1,000 spores per gram. And so how will those findings be practical to producers of these products? So I think one of the most important outcomes is that we now have scientific data available that underlies a lot of knowledge that people already had and were using internally, but they could never communicate about it because there was no data available. There was no reference. So now we have um, a publication which can be used as a reference to improve this communication, improve the understanding between suppliers and buyers, for instance. That is one big advantage. The other is certain companies can review their internal processes. Maybe they've been using uh, a specific agar medium for decades just because they were always using it. Now with this extra knowledge that it may not support certain uh, problematic spore-forming species, they may want to review whether they can switch to different mediums such as TSA and uh, improve their risk assessment and predictability of spoilage. Another is there is an ISO initiative taking place at the moment for standardization of detection and enumeration of spores in all sorts of foods. And our results and data is perfect input for those communications and discussions on uh, which direction to take in that standardization. The work that you've done so far, you, you don't just stop that. What are the next steps in terms of more research on the subject? Yes, indeed. So spores, there will always be variety. There's a lot of biological variety. Uh, of course, there's lots of different species, but also we've seen that strains within the same species can also uh, have a lot of variety in their behavior, either heat resistance or germination properties. So from a fundamental point of view, it's very interesting to understand what underlies this variety. Uh, in some cases, it can be a genetic component. In that sense, we can also think about development of, for instance, molecular methods to substantiate more classical plating methods for detection and risk assessment. There will always be this variety, and, and, and there's no one method that offers 100% predictability, but there will be uh, research directions to help improve the predictability. And apart from that, spores are present everywhere. So we've now done a consortium on milk powders, but there's lots of different other ingredients that also pose, uh, they have their own uh, additional issues. We're now in the process of a consortium project specifically on spores in cocoa powder, for instance. And with cocoa, it's a different process of uh, production. And there are different spore species than with milk powder. And also cocoa has the extra complexity of uh, hydration. So it's very difficult to hydrate the cocoa powder. So even very low numbers of spores can cause issues in UHT products. That's something that is not 
happening a lot with milk powders, for instance, because it's hydrated very nicely. Uh, so those are a few types of uh, directions that we're uh, doing further research on. Seems like you're going to be busy for a little while yet then. Well, yeah, as long as there are spores, I think we'll still be busy. Yeah. All right, that's good. <laughs> New Zealand's NZMP has just finished refreshing its risk and commercial solutions for its customers. And Eric Morrison is head of risk and commercial solutions at NZMP. And he can tell us a little more about what they are and what benefits they have for NZMP's customers. So um, more generally speaking, our NZMP Risk and Commercial Solutions uh, are designed to support customers to manage both their price risk and their supply risk needs. Uh, in saying that, we have a, a broad customer base and they have a very broad set of needs and objectives. Um, so our four hero products are designed to, to cut across those broad market-based needs, if you like. All of the solutions, so all four, provide supply security. So from an operational standpoint, that ensures manufacturing plants can keep running and that brands have the dairy ingredients they need to, to fuel their growth. From a price standpoint, NZMP Price Lock, so the first of the four Hero solutions, provides price certainty. So you're locking in a price today for up to 12 to 18 months forward, which means that you know your ingredient costs, they're confirmed for the agreed volume well ahead of delivery. Um, so they, this can be really useful for, for companies when they're thinking about their budgeting and forecasting of their raw material costs. Um, and that also flows through to, to margin forecasting, obviously, as well. NZMP Price Collar provides price certainty within an agreed price range. So it's enabling a customer to stay closer to the market, but with the inclusion of a price cap or a maximum price and a price floor or a price minimum, um, you're removing some peaks and troughs. Um, so this can be useful for, for instance, if a, if a company knows the maximum price that they can support but wants to retain some exposure to the spot market as well. The other two, so NZMP Double Cap Collar and NZMP Price Break, are probably best described as evolutions of the price lock and the price collar, so the other two products. Um, and these enable customers with, uh, I guess, more specific needs to gain a more customised fixed price or collar type solutions. So really evolutions of, of the price lock and the price collar. Obviously, that's all very good news for your customers. But is there any danger to you in terms of if the market should start to fluctuate in any particular direction? We've spent the last sort of 10 years developing our internal capability around price risk management. So... Specifically, we, we have a, um, a portfolio and a, and a trading team. So when we take on that risk, um, we are managing it ourselves. And what were these solutions specifically introduced for to address for your customers? So some, I guess media headlines um, about weather events, adverse weather events and geopolitical challenges uh, appear to be quite frequent, Jim, um, not just topical at the moment. And, and both of these factors, among others, impact the markets and can undermine business confidence. So really, since we've seen the volatility come into the dairy markets in the past you know, roughly 10 years, um, we've had customers talking to us and, and indeed some suppliers as well, wanting to understand or, or have different options for price and supply risk in the dairy markets. And so, so we started that journey a number of years ago, developing our internal capability so that we can actually offer that and, and provide some options to the market. And, and what are the biggest challenges that these solutions that you have can help to alleviate for companies? Across our, our customers, um, we have a, I guess, every customer is slightly different and faces their own challenges. 
Uh, but a key word that often comes up is confidence word, particularly when you're talking about businesses and, and they're looking at allocating resources or um, investing for growth. So dairy market volatility, um, it can create uncertainty both from a supply and a price perspective. Um, so ultimately what we're trying to do is help customers mitigate some of that uncertainty so they can confidently focus on their, their business strategy um, and their operational priorities. So with our risk and commercial solutions, they know they've locked in a volume and they also know the, the pricing conditions associated with that volume well ahead of time. You just mentioned how every, every company is different. Do you work with the companies individually to tweak these particular tools that you have to best meet their needs? We do, and, and we have a um, global um, sales network. So we have offices located around the world and, and a quite a large sales network. And I have my own um, team of, of specialists, if you like, in the space. So. We are available to talk to customers about what options we can offer. Probably something to note is that it's always really important for a company's decision makers to be clear about um, why they're doing it, why, what outcome they're looking to achieve. Our, our solutions support different needs, so it helps to be sure about what the desired outcome is from the outset. We are talking about you know, entering into forward contracts, so it's really important for people to understand why they want to do it. Have any companies already started to take advantage of this? Yes, we've got a well-established customer base for our NZMP risk and commercial solutions, and, and that spans across the different markets that we operate within um, and also different ingredient applications. And on the back of the, the growing awareness and, I guess, continued interest, we've continued to invest, and then that's resulted us in, in having a refresh and also evolving our offering. And it's also led into us um, more actively showcasing our, our products. So most recently at uh, Gulf Foods in February, actually Food Ingredients China in Shanghai as well. So we've, we've got out there and, and we're really showcasing our, our solutions and, and connecting with our customers that have been using them in the past, but also having those conversations with other companies that um, are interested in seeing what they can do to manage their price and supply risk. And what was the reaction like with the companies that you met at both of those events? We've had some really good feedback. I think in the last couple of years there's been um, less volatility in the market, but we have seen that come back in the last few months. Um, so quite a timely, a timely point to be out there having the conversation with those customers, and, and we're certainly seeing um, the interest and in looking to see how we can help them. And is it an easy conversation? Are they they're getting what you're doing quite easily? I think it's getting easier. As I say, we've been on this journey for a number of years um, internally within um, NZMP about developing our own capability and, and certainly helping to build that awareness. So I think the conversation is getting easier. And I think as we've evolved our offering as well, we're better able to, to meet some of those customer needs. And do those solutions continue to evolve? We believe they will. We have a, a lot of other options as well. To your query around, is it an easy conversation? We've tried to bring a lot more focus to what we're presenting to the market so people are clear at least uh, what we can offer and then if customers have specific needs, we can actually look to do something a little bit different as well. Um, and we expect that will continue as, as the marketplace evolves and that awareness grows. And what products would be covered by these solutions? For Price Lock, it, it's pretty much all of our ingredients um, that we sell, so we're quite flexible in that. So for Price Lock, most of our ingredients. Some of the other structures, such as price collar, price break, we're looking more at some of the um, more generally traded commodities like whole milk powder, skim milk powder, butter, and AMF. But for price lock, it's 
quite general. We can price most of the ingredients. Well, I think it's very important to have that flexibility for companies. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a it's a it's a really important part of our business being able to have those face to face conversations and I guess continually evolve our offering as well to stay current and meet those needs as they change. Tetrapack launched its connected packaging platform at Hanover Messe in Germany recently. It's always a very busy show, and from the extremely noisy event, Martin Engdahl, Product Director for Automation and Digital at Tetra Pak, took some time out to try and find a quiet spot and explain to us what the new Tetra Pak initiative means. Basically, the platform as such is the possibility to uh, build several different applications that could uh, solve certain challenges that customers are dealing with in terms of uh, operational challenges or as well as retail or the consumer what the package has been exposed to during their lifetime. So it's kind of a very versatile and very scalable platform. What you can do is that the platform will make it possible to deliver certain use cases and solve problems along the value chain when you actually are addressing and understanding what challenges the different uh, players along the value chain are facing, like the producers, the retailers, and the consumers. Right. And what will it mean for the end consumer? What will what will this kind of product deliver to them? An opportunity to get the transparency on a package and from its uh, uh, what information, what raw material and ingredients goes into the package, and everything it has been exposed to along the value chain. And, and how will they access that? Will it be on package messaging or will it be the opportunity to do things via the package? The, the package as such, in this particular case, the, the platform will be possible to digitally access that information. So okay. through various uh, method, digital methods. Because that through things like QR codes and the like? Yeah, because as a platform here, it's uh, you can make the package unique and then you can interact with it. And I assume that this will be applicable to a lot of the dairy products that you create packaging for? Yes, it's, it's kind of applicable to everything we do. Uh, so it's not uh, for one specific category uh, throughout the full range of the solutions we provide and what our customers are producing. So it's clearly a very versatile platform then? Yeah, yeah, it's scalable. That, that's the kind of two things. It's kind of it's designed for global usage from a very small customer to the largest one and from very precise to very broad solutions. So it can be, you know, for very tailored experiences or it can be for very, you know, large scale transparency. And, and in terms of the actual implementation of the of this particular application do you work with your customers on that in terms of if they come to you with an idea and say we want to do this do you then take that from there or do you just show them how to do it no uh, the idea with the platform is kind of where we have the foundation and then we will as we go from where we are today onwards we will make these solutions uh, standardized and of course they can be tailor-made for specific use cases but we we would make sure that we build on this foundation now more and more. Yeah, because I would imagine that that's one of the issues is that some companies might have some good ideas, but they're not quite sure how to 
how to bridge that gap between the idea and reaching the consumer. So if, if you can do that for them, then it really takes out the, the worry of how they're going to do that communication step. So this platform here, we, we will be the partners of uh, throughout this process. Okay. And uh, has this been rolled out already? Are any of your customers already using this? Yeah, we have done uh, in, in selected markets. We have done uh, scale trials, so to say, to understand, depending on the market dynamics and the, the maturity. So I think, in, uh, I think it's China, Russia, Dominican Republic, and Spain. Okay, and what's the reaction been like so far? Very positive, and it has been, uh, you know, we have, in this case, also tried to make sure that we have our customers engaged in making sure that we are addressing their specific challenges in these markets. All markets are kind of different. And so this is one of the solutions that you're presenting at Hanover Mesa? In the Hanover exhibition here, we are projecting even the future of intelligent packaging, what is kind of the, the future state where we are heading with this platform. So here we are showcasing what is future version of what this platform can uh, bring us to a situation where the packs become much more intelligent. And what's the reaction been like at the event? Yeah, it has been very busy and it has been a very, uh, very engaging conversations with uh, customers and people. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with INTLFC Stone's Liam Fenton. Butter was a little stronger this week in the near futures market, uh, despite prompt butter continuing to be under pressure and being offered under the 4,000 4, to 4,100 level. Quarter two last week was trading around the 4,275 level, uh, but more around the 4,300 level this week. Quarter three is marginally softer at the 44.50 per ton, uh, down from 4,500 last week. Cream was probably responsible for some of this sell-off, as this was seen as as the main demand week for Easter. But prices came down from around the 4,800 level to 4,400 level approximately. Skimmel powder has continued to get stronger this week, with quarter two at the at the 1990 level, up from uh, 19.60 per ton last week quarter three and quarter four where the resistance level of 2000 was being challenged last week we've had it broken this week and prices in quarter three uh, trading up at around the 20 uh, 30 level per ton this is in line with the global trend uh, i guess that we've seen in the likes of non-fat and the last uh, gdt uh, similar trend for whey prices with prices following skimmel powder at the 810 level on the back of end user buying great thank you liam hopefully talk to you again next week INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another podcast. If you enjoyed it, tell everyone you know, and if not, please keep it to yourself. And if you have any ideas for future features on the podcast, please let us know. Next week, we will have an interview with Australian company Maxim Foods on recent trends in dairy, a feature on Ice Robotics, a Scottish company that has just launched Cow Alert for researchers, and another interview that I won't reveal right now because if they hear the podcast, they might say they have something better to do with 10 minutes of their time than be interviewed by me. And so, until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>